1: It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We have uh, launched a series Uh, entitled, well, basically, Homecoming, uh, based on the book I recently um, wrote and got published last year, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, the last couple of shows, we've been dealing with a chapter title, The Name of the Requirements of Journeys and what we have concluded uh, so far is that there are several connections between uh what we call we we gentiles call the old testament uh connected to the new testament and uh, the hebrews uh the messianic jews call it the jewish testament when we say old testament um and and then they They basically refer to the New Covenant as the uh, Brit Hadashah. Brit is B-R-I-T. It is uh, basically the covenant, and then uh, Hadashah is the New, so uh, the Brit Hadashah. And um, the Jews approach the Holy Scriptures as um, one story that is linked. It's not a kind of a bifurcated or divided story that we Gentiles uh, view the scriptures as. And um, their view of things is much more uh, connected, if you will, um, sequential. And the Messianic Jews understand the importance of studying the uh, The Tanakh and especially the uh, the Torah, the Writings, the Prophets, which are all included in the Tanakh, and and that basically serves as the foundation uh, for Christianity. Uh, The more we look into the connectedness between the uh, Old Testament, the Brit Hadashah, and the New Testament, I'm, I'm sorry, the Old Testament. Uh, which is the writings in the Torah and the prophets connected to the New Testament, um, we see that even Jesus um, said in Matthew 5, I believe it was 17, he says, I did not come to do away with the law and the prophets. Rather, I came to fulfill them. And so that brings a connecting um, message a continuous sort of message between the two Testaments. And as we've studied in earlier shows, we basically said, look, the the Scriptures, uh, all 66 books of them, combining both Testaments, uh, were written in essence by mostly Hebrews, mostly Jewish authors. And most of the New Testament was also written by Jewish authors, in fact, I'm surprised sometimes when I'm having a discussion uh, with Gentiles, and I said, "Hey, uh, newsflash! Did, did you know that Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus our deliverer, Jesus our savior, was Jewish?" And it's surprising how people look at you and they say, "Oh," and then they kind of think back to the scriptures and quotes that they know or memorized or whatever, and they'll say, like, "Yeah, I guess he was." Well, it makes a huge difference in context and when you study the scriptures. Um, Anyway, in earlier shows, um, I have a book called uh, The Blueprint where I talk about um, answering the question, is the Bible a a Greek, linear, uh, westernized, uh, Gnostic sort of story? Or is it, on the other hand, a Jewish Hebrew, circular, cyclical story. And it really makes a big difference because you know that when you draw a line, a a straight line with the beginning point and the ending point, compared to a line that you draw as a circle, those beginning points and ending points don't end up the same. So it's really important that we understand whether this Bible that we spend so much time in as believers uh, which design is it, and who wrote it, and what was the context, and when they wrote it, what was their culture, what was their language, what was their understanding, what was their perspective of the, of the world. And if we don't understand that, we're kidding ourselves. Um, it doesn't make any sense for me to, to say, how do you interpret a circle uh, in drafting class, and I give you then a straight-line 12-inch ruler and say, interpret the circle using a straight line. It's incongruent. It renders everything as far as the question or the challenge is incoherent. It doesn't make sense. You'd say, I can't interpret a circle using a straight line. But that's what we do when we try to uh, study the scriptures disconnected uh, from each other, the two testaments, who, which are, we're trying to separate as if they were two separate books. It doesn't work. If we don't understand the connectedness, it doesn't work. So um, I would encourage you to go on my website. It's um, www.simpletruthministries.net. I'm not a .com. I'm not a .org. I'm a .net. But get that book. I wrote it uh, back in 2016. And uh, the questions that I ask, uh, it'll really stimulate you as far as thinking, wow, I've never considered that, or not thought about this, or this is something I need to take a different look at because it changes everything, literally everything. So getting back to the most uh, recent series that we're doing, uh, we're on chapter two of the homecoming book, which is the most recent book that I published. Um, And the requirements of journeys is the second chapter. And last uh, week we told about, we told you about um, the studying of the Old Testament in the sense of typologies, in the context of typologies. Type simply means a shadowing or a a prophetical sort of picturing of what things are supposed to look like. Um, It's a representation, if you will. And... um, you can look at or hear the earlier shows, the earlier podcasts on that uh, here on kprz.com. Uh, uh, just go to the podcast section, or you can go to my website and uh, look under the media page and also uh, listen to the earlier shows there. So we don't have time to go all over all that, but just to catch us up where we are, we said that the... Um, And I do want to give a plug here for um, a pastor that just recently passed away. It was my pastor, um, Dr. Robert Thompson, incredibly prolific writer. Um, He was 97 years old. Uh, We recently went to his celebration of life, Um, local pastor here uh, in North County. And um, there were people... Uh, still affiliated with his organization that gathered together the total of his um, writings this wouldn 't be all books, but it would be mostly books and pamphlets and he to say he was a prolific writer is an understatement um, the final count and we, it was announced excuse me at his um, at his celebration of life it was one thousand two hundred. I'll say it again, 1,200. Um, if you want to uh, follow up on some more details of some of the things that we're mentioning on this show, I would encourage you to go check out uh, his website at W O R. And that stands for word of righteousness.org. If you just type in the letters, W O R.org, that will get you to it. And, um, He has pretty much waived the copyrights on these books. He just wants to get them out. And you can print them, uh, download them onto your uh, computer and just print them out. Um, So it's a a wonderful legacy, and uh, he just wants to get uh, a lot of the insight that he had um, out. And I would encourage you to to do that, especially when we're talking about these things like the four great types of redemption, uh, which uh, contrasts, four different areas of using the Old Testament um, symbolism and study of everything from the seven Levitical feasts uh, and how, as we go through the Hebrew calendar and follow those seven Levitical feasts, that they represent a um, beginning, a middle, and an ending point of a journey um, towards God, towards knowing God, much more... Intimately, much more closely, much more profoundly and um, and that's one of the group of seven. the next one was the seven furnishings of the uh, tabernacle of Moses. Uh, again, the same thing um, from the middle I'm sorry the beginning to the middle to the end, all of those seven furnishings show a progression of a journey um, from not from being lost, not knowing God to Uh, intimately knowing God, you know, to the point of actually indwelling, where God indwells us. And you think that sounds a little extreme. There are four chapters in the book of John that I would refer you to because it's all about indwelling. John 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, and John chapter 17. Uh, The other area was the seven days of creation. And the last one was the seven phases of the journey uh, of the Jews leaving Egypt and um, being taken uh, through the different phases of the miraculous story of um, Passover, um, leaving Egypt, uh, engaging Sinai, and um, and then eventually uh, crossing over into the Promised Land, um, and then taking the land and then receiving back their inheritance that was promised originally in the covenants between Father God and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, of the uh, Jewish people. So we are in a phase where we are studying this journey of living in a pagan society, we talked about last week, under the tyranny of Pharaoh, uh, a demonic society, a, uh, a absolute contrary um, format when contrasted with the kingdom of God. And uh, the Jews, as we studied last week, were away from God for 430 years. When uh, Moses was finally sent, along with Aaron, to deliver a message to Pharaoh that God wanted his children back. He wanted them back home. He wanted to have a reunion. He wanted to have a reconciliation. And of course, um, you know the story that Pharaoh refused, and there were a series of ten plagues, and the last of which, which uh, produced the uh, celebration of what the Jews call Passover. And we just dis- and we discussed that last week. What the significance was of uh, Passover and the fact that. Passover was not the end of the journey. It was not the middle of the journey. It was simply the beginning of the journey from going to a demonic pagan environment with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a type of uh, Satan or Lucifer. And uh, leaving the slavery and the oppression of Egypt, which, again, using typology, using types and shadows... That's really a representation of the values of the world, the fallen world, post Genesis chapter three, and um, and coming out of the world, coming, leaving it, disconnecting from it, canceling it, if you will, and uh, departing from it. And so we talked last week about <clears throat> when you uh, celebrate Passover. Yes, you take the blood of the unblemished landy lamb, and you put it on the doorposts of your house, um, that in essence delivers you from the judgment that befell Egypt, the judgment of death of the firstborn of each house in Egypt. And uh, the Jews were spared all that because they obeyed, and they listened to Moses, and they did what Moses directed them to do because Moses uh, received those instructions directly from God, and he passed that along uh, to the Hebrews. Um, And as they followed the directions, they lived. So they came out of Egypt uh, because that was part and parcel of not just being delivered from death, but you're supposed to also uh, separate yourselves from that influence, which is basically— Anathema to God. It was anti God. It was the opposite of God. Everything that the Egyptian society represented. And uh, they were to come out of that. And we talked about that last week that this journey was not just to take them to a new place, which was the Promised Land, but more importantly, um, by the way, in that Promised Land was their inheritance. You get inheritances from fathers. And Father God wanted to reconnect with his Hebrew children and in order to, that they can have an, uh, could have an inheritance they had to uh, basically get reacquainted uh, with their father and become members of the family again and so we talked about uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight and that uh, listed all the reasons as to why the father brought them out to the desert so they could get reacquainted so that they could find out that the father was a provider by giving them uh, everything they needed in the vast wilderness of the Sinai desert. Uh, their clothes uh, did not wear out. Their feet did not swell with the journey. Um, if they needed food, uh, food was uh, divinely provided through the manna. Uh, there was always a double portion on um, on Thursday because Friday, the next day, was the beginning of Shabbat. Um, and the faithfulness of God in providing was... Um, a true story of the nature and character of Father God, that he can be trusted, he can be looked to, he can be um, depended on because of who he is. Water came out of a rock. Um, The Father sent um, the Holy Spirit in the form of of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that um, the Jews were told to follow cloud that moved and and to follow the pillar of fire and basically because those were going to be indicators of where the next encampment in that journey of the Hebrews in the desert where they were going to stop and make camp and that's the place where the provision from the father was going to take place in other words if they went in a different, direction, an alternative direction, other than what they were being led to do or commanded to do, um, the camp who did obey would be fed, would be given water, and would most importantly have the presence of God uh, as it came down over on the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, which was within the Holy of Holies location, which was inside the Tent of Moses, Tabernacle of Moses. And... um, It's interesting that that was a day-by-day experience that the Jews had to learn how to operate by depending on God in the micro moment, not just the macro. And this was a day-by-day-by-day experience. Sometimes it was a moment-by-moment experience. And um, God was uh, instructing and exemplifying what a relationship with a loving, providing, protecting, identity-giving Father would be like. So that's kind of where we left off um, uh, last week. And uh, I just wanted to read uh, page 20 of this chapter, the requirements of journeys under the book Homecoming. And I said, to sum up, God's goals for... The Hebrews, in this case, um, when they who were tra- when they were traveling from Egypt to Canaan, it served as a f- of a foreshadowing of our personal jur- journey as believers with and towards the Lord. Uh, this particular journey, um, using the uh, Jews as a example, had a twofold goal of reconciliation. Of Father God with His children, while at the same time redeeming His children's stolen inheritance back to the children. Their stolen inheritance of Earth that they lost in Genesis chapter three, and there was theft, there was fraud involved with Satan's uh, stealing of our earthly inheritance, and um, and one day will be completely nullified on the stewardship of the Earth by human beings. Uh, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2, will be eventually returned to mankind, its rightful owners. And um, I cite there Genesis 2.15 and Genesis 2.19. So to sum up, God's goals for this return journey are first a relationship, a relational restoration between Father God, Adonai, and his children. And the other goal, second, was the redeeming of stolen property, our earthly creation, back to the original government and kingdom of God under the headship of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus uh, the Deliverer, that we see in Isaiah 9, 6, when uh, the uh, Redeemer, the Messiah, returns. He brings God's government on his shoulder, and we see uh, that's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see in Revelations 5, verses 9 through 10, we see that, Um, we are going to eventually return back to earth um, to serve with Jesus in his role as king, not only of the Jews, but of all. And we are to be kings and priests serving with him uh, back on earth. Check that out, Revelations 5, verses 9 through 10. So, um, going back to the next phase after um, the miraculous uh, redemption of the Hebrews through, uh, the, through the Red Sea, um, Pharaoh had changed his mind. He wanted to attempt to reestablish his authority over his former slaves, and God had other plans. And, of course, we discussed that last week. And in many ways, the example of of the immersion into Sinai, into the, the separating waters. We see a, again, it's a type. It's a representation also of our individual walk as believers in the new Testament. And that's what Romans chapter six is all about. That's why it's used uh, so much at uh, water baptisms. Um, We are to be crucified. Let's see here. Let me read from Romans six, go straight to it. I'm going to read this out of the new King James. Um, but that going under the water, in fact, I attended a, a water baptism yesterday of a former neighbor of mine. And um, and so Paul says, therefore, we were buried, this is in verse 4 of Romans 6, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of, of life. So this is a an experience that the Jews were heading out of Egypt and coming to a newness of life. It was an adventure. They didn't quite know exactly how this was going to roll out. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is verse six now, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should here it is we should no longer be slaves of sin. So you see, it's a disconnect from our previous life of our enslavement um, to sin, the power of sin over our lives. Look at verse seven, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And so the representation is when the person who's being uh, given water baptism goes under the water He's basically uh, suffering well, not, or experiencing that same uh, death um, that Jesus died originally as in, in human form, but then he's going to be coming out of that death into a new life, resurrected, if you will. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That's verse seven. Verse eight. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing. That Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Here it is. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That's verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12. Therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. And so, and look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, but you are not under the law, uh, law meaning in the law of, of uh, ordinances and um, rituals and observances, but you are under grace. So, um, in essence... That's what water baptism is all about. It's, an, it's another disconnect from leaving Egypt, coming through uh, the Red Sea. It parts. And then the, when the enemy tries to bring you back to Egypt, in other words, try to recapture you uh, using his previous authority over you as a, as a taskmaster, if you will, as a tyrant, um, he's not able to do it because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He basically, when he prayed that night in Gethsemane, the night before he died, and said, Father, if it's, pass, if it's possible that this cup pass from me, yet, or, he said, some other Bibles say, nevertheless, yet not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And basically, he was telling the Father, even if it kills me in the most horrible way, I am going to do your will. That broke the back of the satanic rebellion. I'll see you after on the other side of the break. Welcome back, saints. So we are um, continuing on this chapter of the requirements of journeys and um, finishing up on why it was so important that the Hebrews, after being delivered from death, at Passover uh, in Egypt, didn't stay in Egypt or remain in Egypt. They had to leave. They had to go and disconnect from that um, environment, that um, basically an environment of oppression, of slavery, of control of and by Pharaoh over their lives. And that represents us when we first come to the Lord. We are delivered from death uh, because of what, Jesus did for us on the cross as an atonement, as a uh, expiation sort of sacrifice in our place. And in essence, and we're talking about a journey here. So we've gone from Passover, leaving Egypt, going through the Red Sea. That's the water baptism that we see in, in the Christian experience. And then the next one is coming up on the other side of the Red Sea, and basically realizing as you stare back over your shoulder that of all the uh, dead Egyptian um, soldiers of Pharaoh who were trying to pull you back into slavery, and realizing that the attempt by Pharaoh to reassert his authority failed because of your obedience following Moses through the Red Sea. I try to picture yourself as the Hebrews looking at that. yes, they knew they were being pursued and they were scared, but at the same time, um, they took a lot of of trust, took a lot of faith to follow and go through uh, that experience when Moses is up there, and he has he has his uh, staff. And you're saying, all I can see is chariots and horses pulling chariots and fully armed soldiers who used to be uh, my slave masters. But they did follow, and they did obey, and they realized that after the Red Sea closed in on the uh, soldiers of Pharaoh, uh, they were all dead. And Miriam started... Uh, celebrating and dancing with her tambourine, saying, we're all alive. And that's what Romans 6 is used so much, Romans chapter 6, at water baptism, because of what it means, using, again, the typology going back to the the journeys that we see of the uh, leaving Egypt and going to Canaan experience of the Hebrews. So symbolically, we have gone through initial salvation with being spared from death at Passover. Um, and then we have gone through uh, the, the uh, Red Sea experience of water baptism, and now we've come up on the other side and we're born again. We're alive, and the enemy's authority over us has been has been shattered um, because of what we did um, by declaring, as we see in Romans 6, 14, we're saying when we go under that water, sin shall no longer have dominion over me. I'm done. Verse 12, and therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. It's all about coming away from the power of Satan, darkness, death, destruction, and coming over to light and life and over to know relationally our God. That's that's what eternal life is. That's what we defined in earlier shows. Take a look at uh, John 17.3. Eternal life is not dying and going to a place. It is getting reacquainted with your Father, Creator, through the Son and by the Spirit. That's what it's all about. Check it out. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. uh, John 17.3. And uh, also John... Chapter 12, 49, and 50. Those are the two places where eternal life is defined, and it's not your definition that you were taught in Catholic catechism, and it's not your definition that you were probably taught in a Protestant um, Sunday school class. We're going back to the Scripture, folks. We're going back to the Bible, and we're just going back to see what does the Word say. Okay, so um, this show for this day deals with the next phase of... The journey, and it's called Engaging Sinai, Mount Sinai. So um, this is celebrated. um, It's 50 days after the um, death of uh, Christ, after Passover, Uh, they come to uh, Mount Sinai, and it's in the Hebrew. It's called Shavuot. It's called the uh, Feast of Weeks. It's a it's a, a harbinger of the harvest. Um, in the summertime, the wheat harvest, and um, in Gentile circles, it's called Pentecost, penta meaning 50, and on the journey, um, it's often considered to be uh, kind of a halfway point as far as the maturation experience um, of individual pathfinders, individual travelers, if you will. And this experience uh, deals with it's kind of um, like three deaths and three resurrections. The first death um, uh, that we suffer, because there's always a resurrection after the death. The first death we suffer or go through is is leaving Egypt. We're dying to um, our old ways of doing things, um, our old values, our old connections with the world system in Egypt. And, um, but the next step that we encounter is um, God being there to, to um, greet us, if you will. Uh, at Mount Sinai. And there's another death that we have to suffer um, or go through. Maybe it's not suffering because it's actually liberation. But that death is a death to sin. And um, so the first one, the first death that we experience as uh, born-again believers is the death to the world when we leave Egypt. But the second one is death to sin when we get to Sinai. And here at Sinai, this is where there's a second spiritual death. Again, we're talking about spiritual death experiencing by the traveling pilgrims. Um, They enter into a death to the control of sin over his or her life. It's a, uh, and there, but at the same time, there's a corresponding spiritual resurrection. So it's not as if you're suffering something that um, that's going to harm you. It's actually, there's a corresponding resurrection spiritually that occurs as the traveling uh, pilgrim, if you will. It's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, if you read that book when you were in um, youth group. Pilgrim's Progress, learnings, lessons of how to obey God's will and how to um, understand his holiness and become holy yourself as directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And uh, there. are I quote John 16:7 through 11. This is taught as the sanctification process. Sanctification is a 25 dollar word to simply mean uh you are becoming more and more in the image and likeness of God. Which if you go back and think of the original uh purpose for which God created mankind, you find that in Genesis 1 and 2 where it talks about being made in his image and in his likeness to be eventually reflected out to the world, so, as Jesus put it in John seventeen three. I and you, Father; you and me; we and them; and them and us. So that the world may know, Father, that you sent me. That's in John seventeen twenty one and John seventeen twenty three. This is where it's eventually hap- um, going to. But taking a quick look at uh, John sixteen, uh, chapter sixteen, verse seven. Let's take a look at that, and I'm taking it out of the New King James. Jesus, the night before he dies, this is what the four, this, these four chapters in John are all about, John 14, John 15, John 16, and John 17. And at this point, um, Jesus is explaining to his apostles that um, he was going to go away, back to the Father. And, um, and he says to you, it uh, says to us in John um, 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, or the paraclete, if you will, um, uh, the Holy Spirit, referred to as the helper, the paraclete, the nurturer, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, now listen, this is this is probably the main reason um uh, main purpose of the Holy Spirit. Now, he has several purposes. There's all kinds of functions and roles that this Holy Spirit has. But check out verse 8 of chapter 16 of John. And Jesus says to him, and when he has come, he being referred to the Holy Spirit, he listen, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Wow. That's pretty much, I opine here that this is the main job, the main function, the main role of the Holy Spirit. Yes, is he the giver of gifts? Of course. Yes, are we to receive and reflect the fruits of the Spirit? Of course. Um, I'm a big promoter of uh, Pentecostalism and saying, "Look, the Holy Spirit is critical if we're going to mature um, in our walk with Christ. He's absolutely essential." I, I'm not a believer that uh, the gifts ended uh, when the apostles died out. There's, I don't see any Bible for that. I've looked for it, I can't find it, but I do know that I have been um, healed miraculously of diseases, and I have seen others healed as we have asked. Jesus, who is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, as we see in the book of Acts. Um, And oftentimes, the Father in Jesus' name, we ask him to send the Holy Spirit. He has several roles. Um, We see some of the other roles here um, uh, in verse 12. I still have many things to do, many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now or bear them now. In verse 13, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Here's another function of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he gives us wisdom. He will guide us into all truth. He is called the Spirit of truth. That's a capital S there, okay? For he will not speak on of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So that, of course, would manifest in one of the gifts, the prophetical gifts, So, um, the Holy Spirit is, in essence, part and parcel of the giving of what they call the Law of Sinai. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of uh, misunderstanding in Gentile circles about um, the Torah. Torah means teaching, Uh, it refers to uh, the Law. And we all think of um, what law was given to us um, at Sinai. It was, of course, uh, the Ten Commandments. And uh, Jesus summarized those Ten Commandments by saying, look, here's, here's a summary of the law and the prophets. Love God and love others as yourself. Excuse me. That is basically uh, what it's all about. And why the law? Why uh, did this have to... Um, be emphasized, and um, be part and parcel of their journey. And I think it's important, um, let's see here, to look at the Holy Spirit's role in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And I'm just going to read here from the, uh, the book on page 24. What was God's goal in bringing about the Hebrew exodus of his children away from the culture and away from the control of Pharaoh's Egypt. Why were the Hebrews not allowed um, under the direction of Moses to return right away back to their land, earlier promised by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis uh, 28. And um, we point out here that all journeys have goals that first need to be identified by those partaking in the traveling experience. Identification of those goals is critical because if a journey is to be considered a success, those same goals are required to be accomplished. Otherwise, what would be the point of undertaking the journey experience in the first place? So we studied um, last week uh, or two weeks ago uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 of, as to God's motives uh, to bring them the, the Jews out uh, into the desert to get reacquainted, They matriculated into the university of God, so to speak. Um, But God's main objective was a renewed relationship with his people. But the detour into the Sinai wilderness was set up to test the Hebrews as to their trust and as to their desire um, in responding to the overtures of their father creator to form a more trusting and a more intimate relationship of deep love and dependence. And we list all of the miracles that God did, feeding them with meat and manna from the sky, water from a rock, Uh, garments did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. But there had to be a test involved in determining the Hebrews' commitments to keep the commandments of God. Now, oftentimes we hear the word commandments, and it's like, okay, God's just trying to, Impose on me arbitrary rules to take away my my fun, but we have to understand the motivations of fathers when they um, part of their job is to protect their children. And I may be a a three or four year old little kid who uh, whose house uh, fronts a busy thoroughfare, and I want to take my soccer ball out there and um, at rush hour, and I want to go play out in my front yard if my parents, especially my father is doing his job, he's going to say, son, you're going to do that in the backyard not the front yard. And I may be angry at him because I don't understand why I can't be out in the front yard maybe and see my friends or whatever. Um, But my father's motives are pure in that he wants to protect me from harm. So let's go back to the book, page 25, the warnings to the people of God regarding The absolute necessity of obeying Father God, Adonai, in all matters were designed, here it is, to protect the children of God from harm, harm, and from death. Whether they realized it or not, the Hebrews had enemies who were planning ambushes. They were planning attacks against them in their journey. And God's revealed laws were not established in an effort to take away his children's joy or to rain on their parade, so to speak. Simply put, obedience meant life and it meant freedom, while the opposite, disobedience or rebellion, brought on oppression, slavery, and death. It was a cause and effect situation and ultimately... It was up to the Hebrews what was going to happen. And so I point out here that the Father even sent the Comforter in the form of the Holy Spirit, cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night, to direct and guide the Hebrews in the details, in the micro, if you will, of how and where they would discover the provisions and the resources for both survival and victory. Excuse me. Yet in order to benefit from the intervention of the Holy Spirit, and this is key, in order to benefit from the intervention of the Holy Spirit, obedience to the comforter's directions was the rule of the day to guarantee, to ensure that the Jews were to be in the exact location where food and water was to be available as the journey proceeded. Also, uh, practiced obedience to the Holy Spirit's guidance, also guaranteed that the people would be at the exact location of the encampment where the presence of God would descend and remain amongst the camp. So, let's go on to another aspect of the Sinai. It really was the fourth phase Of this journey, and it was the the next destination on the Egypt to Canaan travel, which uh, it took place in a desert wilderness, a tall mountain called Mount Sinai. And God was going to remind his children that his nature was one of holiness and of order. As such, righteousness produced from their obedience, the obedience of his children, um, to God's protective laws. Protective ordinances would result in the life of his children and the abundance of life to his children. God, Father God, intended that through his covenant at Sinai, the wilderness journey of the Hebrew children um, would allow his children to see his nature and his character revealed to them that God was a God of mercy. He was a God of provision. He He was a God of protection. He was also a God of justice. Because at the core, if you go back to Egypt and what their experience was there, sin and rebellion um, were the essence of God's problem. God's problem didn't begin on earth. It began in heaven, as we can see in Isaiah 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, or Ezekiel 28, and beginning at verse 14. Check out those two references, and you'll see that rebellion against God didn't begin on earth. It began in the second heavens with fallen angels and was brought down to earth and ruined everything. So, the solution to God's problem of sin and rebellion is what? Obedience that produces righteousness really is the only, the sole, S O L E, sole solution to the problem of rebellion because sin infected all of creation. And it can only be conquered by our complete surrendering to God's will in every dimension. God's will is protective. It's protective for his children, protective for us. And they're not just protective. God's commandments also give eternal life. Now you say, where does it say that in the scripture? Well, let's go to John chapter 12, verse 49. And see what it says there about the connection between commandments, obeying God's commands, and eternal life. So here we go. John 12, out of the New King James, verse 49. For I have not spoken, this is Jesus speaking, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say, what I should speak. Check out verse 50. And I know that his command is eternal life. Get that? First line of verse 50 in John chapter 12. And I know that his command is everlasting life. It reminds me of, um, I'm trying to think where it was. Um, Jesus was approaching, I think it was Matthew chapter 19, and um, there was an inquiry um, by an individual who said, what do I have to do to attain eternal life? Well, let's, let's flip over there real quickly and see how Jesus answers that inquiry. In Matthew 17, let's do it in the New King James, and we're going to look at verse 16. So I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew 19, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. And now one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You remember how we just uh, described eternal life in John 17, 3? That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Okay, so that's eternal life, relationship with God. So listen to what Jesus answered in verse 17 of, of chapter 19 of Matthew. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. There's not a lot of teaching of that concept in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, that keeping God's commandments lead to life. We have a lot of uh, excuse making that somehow um, God doesn't give us what we need as resources to be able to obey him. And if we read the I'm just going to encourage you to read the letter uh, in in 1 John, all of the chapters of 1 John, because it says, look, his commandments are not burdensome. And um, these are things that the Holy Spirit enables us to do. And um, the whole idea is to leave Egypt and to realize that God has extra commands to give us, and he empowers us with the Holy Spirit to keep those commandments so that we live By his power, we leave the power of Satan that Paul explained to King Agrippa in Acts 26 and said, I'm bringing the Gentiles from the power of Satan to God. How powerful is that? God bless you guys. I hope you have so many Simple Truth Moments on your journey. We'll see you next week. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit SimpleTruthMinistries.net. That's SimpleTruthMinistries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at Earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's Truth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m., right here on K Praise.
0: Three star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.